If Mr. Freeze was a historical figure, then Arnold Schwarzenegger. In honor of Elvis and Nixon, Dawn of Justice, what was the weirdest historical figure casting choice? Mr. Freeze isn't a historical figure. Um, I'm Katie Rich, and to stay on the theme, John Cusack is Richard Nixon in The Butler. That happened. Hey, it's me, Dave with the Seven. John Wayne as Genghis Khan in The Conqueror. I get to choose this because I'm first. (laughs) I am uh, Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with John Cusack, who could play any historical figure, apparently. Uh, And I'm going to pick him as Edgar Allan Poe in The Raven because of his delivery of the line, Emily! (laughs) Sounds exactly like Edgar Allan Poe's (laughs) recordings. Uh, And I'm David Ehrlich. I would love to pick John Cusack for something, but I think I'm going to go with Richard Gere as Bob Dylan, kind of, slash Billy the Kid, and I'm not here. I understand the central conceit of this movie is to sort of explore Bob Dylan's myth and, and mythos through all these different characters and sides, but conflating Richard Gere with Bob Dylan is still a bridge that I have trouble crossing. <laughs> Carol! Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine, too, eh? Good, then, well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's It's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 115 for Tuesday, April 19th, 2016. On this day in 1948, big year, the American Broadcasting Company Television Network, now known as ABC, began... And our lives have been uh, Shonda Rhimes enhanced ever since. Uh, before we get started this week, David, but here we have reviews. We do. We have <laughs> a short uh, one and a devastating one. Who knows? Well, it's not one, devastating at Vincent all. Vincent Archer says, best episode ever, uh, but I don't think he means it. It had been a hard week at work, but David Whitesplaining Barbershop 3 was the moment that made my commute worthwhile. The heavy sigh when he had to admit he thought these kinds of movies were okay for those people and it's fine that this exists, was maybe the most laugh-out-loud Connecticut rich boy moment in Millennial Travers' career. Wow. Millennial Travers. Millennial Travers. That's a little out of date now. Change your Twitter handle <laughs> immediately. Now that I don't work at Rolling Stone, I think that... You that's can still be Millennial Travers. No, but I think that's really the context for it. Anyway, I'm not quite done with this review. Even better, it was when <laughs> Patches overcompensated in reverse by comparing it to August Wilson. And, of course, Katie never even entertained the notion of seeing such a film. Wow. Oh. Are you willing? I dwelled on that comment after we recorded the episode, and I totally stand by it more than ever. The more I think about the movie, the more I, that comparison is apt. I don't care. I'd be willing to contribute to a Kickstarter for a very special episode in which you kids actually have to interact with real live black people <laughs> instead of just talking about Hamilton. <laughs> Hamilton. That's a pretty Can we do both? <laughs> <laughs> uh, black people to Hamilton Day. If you, if you guys will kickstart our Hamilton tickets, yeah. No, we're supposed to stop talking about. Oh, Hamilton. I see. Get over see. Hamilton now. That is your appropriation oh, of culture in some capacity, apparently. Oh, but uh, I mean, they're pretty spot on, right? No, I mean, we every time we talk about movies with black people, we had this conversation about how we are woefully underinformed. And they're... well, the irony is that the bit was motivated by that, and and. Uh, I haven't re-listened to it. I don't care to. <laughs> but our, you you know, our, the, our bit was, or, or Pat, you know, Patch is motivated that segment because he thought that we, 
it was all about how white critics and white critical bodies ignore movies uh, that focus on black people, yeah. minorities in general. But, you know, there are a lot of movies that are aimed uh, – that come out in America and are released wide. They're aimed at black audiences more than there are at Asian audiences or uh, Indian audiences, although those are continuing to pick up steam uh, and make box office uh, top tens. And nobody ever talks about that either. Uh, yeah. And, but you, I guess, you know uh, – and so we, we, without sort of trying to pat ourselves on the back about talking about it, we were just trying to address that larger issue more than the film yeah. itself. Yeah, uh, we may have, we, no. yeah, we may have failed, but uh, you know, we're a work in progress. Felt, yeah, felt like a conversation worth having, regardless. At least we can reflect on it now, thanks to this elegantly written review. We can reflect on, of us, on how young we were a week ago. None of us has ever met a black person, so it was very difficult to try and rope one of them in. <laughs> New York. Uh, and not because we make this shit up like 30 minutes before we record. Uh, but, you know. Neil Travers, what's, what else is uh, on our review? Uh, let's see. TJ Wells says, listen, these guys take a drunken voicemail you leave about some dumb topic that probably didn't make sense and turn it into an entire segment. That's good <laughs> in my book. Now, that's basically the segment from last week. All of the segments from last week. Every wow. segment we had on the show. I, I, I planned episodes in advance, guys. I don't know about, you know. It's still based on your drunken bantering, though. Well, not mine. <laughs> well, who are we going to offend this week? Let's go. I can't Let's go. Wait. Let's find oh, out. Offended you this week, please feel free to leave a review on uh, iTunes. It only helps people who will be offended in the future find the show. Let's shit on the Jews, you know? It's Passover. <laughs> they have it coming. A little too high and mighty about that whole escape thing, am I right? Oh, boy. <laughs> no uh. comment. It's interesting that we're talking about people to offend because the uh, third episode of the new season of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt is all about people taking offense at things on the internet. Um, I mean, this show is about many things. Or actually engaging with them. Or actually engaging with them, which is, I mean, I don't know. Like it, it, That episode alone is completely fascinating and probably deserves its own topic. But Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt came back. Patches, you managed to watch the whole thing. Yeah, I guess I didn't have enough to do this weekend while Tread Back was happening. <laughs> See you next segment. Um... Yeah, I, I plowed through it, and I didn't really expect to. Um, you know, season two of all television shows, they, you know, season two never gets enough fanfare. It just comes back, and especially in the Netflix era, I feel like they dump it, and people, you know, maybe tweet a few reviews or something, the highly critical types. Um, but there's not a lot to say about a season two. We've been there. We've done that. You know, we've we've given the commentary for the, these introductions, and it's hard to like kind of go back and think. Piece might be the wrong word, but recalibrate, recriticize, because um, people are kind of over it now. They just watch it for fun. That's the sense I get. Um, and so I was surprised to see. Actually, I'm not surprised to see that a lot of people were kind of underwhelmed by Kimmy Schmidt season two so far, uh, from what I've read. And it just seems like not truly underwhelmed. They just don't have a lot to say about this season of Kimmy Schmidt because, and that's weird, especially because I think season two gets crazier. Um, it really plays up 
the fantastical nature of the show. It plays up the airplane style, like every mm-hmm. every minute's a joke. Every, and three, lots of meta jokes that don't make sense within any real world, but are hilarious. Yeah, and then it does go the extra mile, for better or worse, and maybe we can discuss this, uh, of taking on the critical backlash of last season. And maybe that has a lot of critics kind of turning their nose and being like, you know, why don't you accept my notes or why are you laughing off everything, all my think pieces from last season about race, about privilege, about Tina Fey, writing style. And yeah, as you mentioned, the third episode is about Titus putting on a one man show about his past lives where he plays a, uh, a geisha. And, you know, I did see that. that. That's the last episode that I watched, but not because I was so offended that I couldn't continue only because I had to cover Tribeca. Uh, but I did think that was very funny how that episode is fascinating, how uh, his his yeah. uh, he has this whole little coalition of people who who are offended by him prior to actually seeing the show. And then they all become his biggest fans. It's very amusing. And of course, that has spurred its well, own. Well, one of them offends herself with a comment and is raptured into heaven, apparently. So that's a, that's a different version. Uh, but, but I think Kimmy Schmidt uh, season two goes an extra mile. And why I'm falling head over heels again for this show is the pathos of, of Kimmy, someone who has gone through something horrible. Being kid- I mean, the setup for Kimmy Schmidt, lest we forget, is basically room. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't let us forget it in this season. There's a lot of trauma that she's dealing with her sex life and trauma that she's dealing with her family. And we get to see some flashbacks to when she was kidnapped. I mean, this is fucked up shit. But Kimmy is, you know, happy-go-lucky. She's always smiling and she's from another universe. She's just learning the world for the first time. And it's so funny, again, but so serious and confronting, again, all these racial issues that the first season may have had. Um Jacqueline uh, is in the beginning of the show. We catch up with her uh, being on her Native American reservation. Uh, This is the character played by Jane Krakowski, and she's going to she's lost her husband. She's lost her life. And now she's going to come back to New York. And that was huge criticism against the first season about making this white woman. Uh, I'm forgetting what. uh, I think Sue, but I I might have that. I remember her being assigned a Sue name. Um. Oh, you might be right. Yeah, she goes to South Dakota, so I'll have to look that up. But yeah, I mean, she comes back from that, and that continues on, and then goes into a whole thing about the um, the Redskins football team. Of course, of course. So it's really confronting all these notions from last season. But is it successful? So, Katie, you've watched a bunch. David, you watched one. Dave, I, I think I told you to watch a bunch. I don't know if you have. I'm about halfway uh, through. I got about halfway through. Oh, good. So is it funnier? Is it a letdown? Because I think the beginning of these, I've heard a lot of people saying, get through these first two or three episodes. They're bad. And then it is a huge upswing. I was highly entertained beginning to end, but on different in different ways. So I'm curious, you guys' reactions. Uh, I haven't watched a sitcom week to week since How I Met Your Mother Hurt Me So Bad, at, like the end of it. <laughs> so it's really been interesting to me how much for especially for Kimmy Schmidt like I could get into the groove of it and actually find it like a lot more tolerable and it's not like maybe tolerable is not the right word I'm actually getting I'm learning how to watch it better if I watch a bunch of it in succession and I learned how to you know pick out lines for each joke that it is and I don't stray too much on like the overall plot so I mean I really like the way that season two, I guess when it gets mean, it feels like it's mean in the way that like I think all 
uh, sitcoms set in New York sort of like have like a meanness underneath whatever they're doing. And so that for me sort of made me, maybe it's because I'm not, I haven't been there for a while, but it made me sort of like re-embrace the series both as like something that's about weirdly kooky characters, but also about like positivity amongst like the uh, horribleness of New York sometimes. But when you say mean, what do you mean? What's what's the mean streak of the show? Just I mean, being critical of, or maybe m- maybe uh, I mean I never thought that Seinfeld was mean until like the end of it, where I guess like that's what we were all supposed to take away, at least from the finale. But um, maybe it's some sort of honesty or not wanting to like shy away from what traditional sitcoms would probably not touch unless they made an entire show, you know, mm. about race or about class. Kimmy Schmidt is yeah, sort but- of bopping it out of there uh, and either try to say something or make a really stupid joke about it. And I think, you know, with race and class, it's hit or miss, but I appreciate watching it try if I'm in the groove of things. Yeah. The back half of the season, um, Tina Fey, enters the series as a um as as a therapist, a drunk therapist specifically. Was she and, still playing Marsha Clark? Yeah, different hairdo. Uh and the kind of moral of the entire season is maybe you don't have to help everyone. And that's a weird that's mm-hmm. a weird moral or a lesson to take away, but in Kimmy's case it makes perfect sense. Everyone stomps all over her. Um but maybe is that maybe that's the mean streak. Like living your own life is selfish and, and mean on some level but you have to do it for your own mental health well it comes across mean in the format of a sitcom especially in the format of a sitcom that has this like ball of positivity at the at the the center of it so it may i mean it may not actually be mean but everything that i think people are sort of kicking back across as insensitive is part of like just that friction that i think works for me but i definitely had to settle into it whatever people are saying about the first few episodes like taking some rocking time to get into I I concur. Yeah. I think if you had a problem with the native American plot in the first season, you see it like really lean into it in the first episode and then have that geisha episode. Like there's definitely a stubbornness to it. Like a fuck you. You can't tell me what to do. And it it reminds me of the, uh, the episode of 30 rock that had Kristen Milotti on as this comedian. And they, uh, there had been a, like an article on a fake Jezebel called TGS hates women. And they're trying to, kind of contend with these internet commenters like there's definitely a fighting back element to it against i think as you were saying patches like the exact people who've been writing about this um but it does feel like it's punching down a little bit which is where like the episode didn't totally hit hit for me because when they're like parodying like upper east side moms like anna camp shows up as this like alpha mom which i think is really funny or even like martin short as that doctor last season even though the real life inspiration for him killed himself so that was kind of sad in the end of it it, it feels like those are better targets for them, the way that media was for 30 Rock. And, and Kimmy Schmidt kind of hits people who are down in a way that sometimes does feel mean. I see what you mean, Dave. Yeah. Although, I mean, it's about Kimmy trying to wrap her mind around how the the internet works, too. She has no idea how everyone's become connected. Yeah, everyone, well, everyone talks like Chandler on the internet. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, I mean, she's dealing with her own, like, weird race issues too i mean she's in love with this guy named dong um and he's been green card married to an older woman who is supremely psychotic um and that she wears like a metal helmet and believes she can turn invisible but hey anything for a green card and yeah she's dealing with that whole side of things i don't know you're right it can be as white privileged young people what do we think about that? <laughs> i mean i'm 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 kind of like 
I'm just laughing and and I, I want someone to push back against outrage culture, but maybe maybe the show just can't function in that way and then it's offset by Titus striking up this amazing gay romance with kind of a blue collar conservative dude uh who has uh, Tilda Swinton airbrush on the back of his truck which is, which is my, the, yeah, that made me laugh harder than anything I've seen all year <laughs> but is that is that where we get confused with Kevin Schmidt that so much goes right that some of these more egregious moments are kind of swept under the rug because it's the fast the pace of it all I've been watching uh, some old Simpsons before I go to bed on the FX Simpsons world, whatever. And like a lot of the crazy racial stereotyping stuff they're trying to undo in this season, like back in seasons like three through six, is really crazily offensive now. Like especially a whole bunch of stuff that they tried, they say about Native Americans uh, would not fly if it was like on current broadcast television. So I think we might be seeing what happens when you're not constrained by something like Netflix. Because Kimmy Schmidt wasn't like picked up by traditional television, but Netflix swooped in to save it. And so now that they know they're not you know, having to play to everybody, they could just play to a specific audience. Although I, think although I believe the episodes... I believe the episodes from last season were produced by NBC, not Netflix. And these are the first set of episodes I, yeah. where they could theoretically go off the rails. Was, I think that's what Dave was saying. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I, thought, I thought you were saying that they that the entire series as a whole is kind of pushing back against sitcom format. But I mean, maybe it is, but I think like whatever their concept was, the edges got sharper because they were allowed to because they aren't on broadcast television. So whatever all these concepts were, they might have been a little more rounded, normal sitcom-y. But the second season, they know they're on Netflix. They know they have their audience built in from the first season. So whatever these characters want to manifest, and sometimes it's ugly, they're like allowed to manifest. It's like the series is trying to find itself. Yeah. As I was watching, especially the Geisha episode that I keep mentioning, I feel like it could use the presence of someone like Dong a little bit more, like a character who is like part of one of these groups that it's kind of fighting back against automatic outrage culture for, but is a well-rounded character. Um, I think uh, I, I kind of like the Native American stuff, that stuff, and I think that uh, Jacqueline's parents are really part of that because they are these interesting, like, thorough characters who are reacting to all the ridiculousness that their daughter who wants to be white is throwing their way. Um, and it just, like, it could use a little bit more of that, but that might come later in the season. Yeah, and I mean, lest we forget that Titus is a, quote, person of color, as some people would say, and, and a gay man, and I don't know. If you're looking for diversity, is Titus not filling that? No, he definitely is, but he's, I mean, but he's... He's one character, and they're you know they're kind of throwing jokes in a lot of different directions. And I mean, I think Titus goes a long way and is an amazing character, but uh, you know he can't cover all the ground. That is true. Well, if if the first few episodes of Kimmy Schmidt are are worrying you and you're not thinking of sticking with it, do stick with it. I hate being that guy saying that it gets better, but it, come on, you watch the whole first season. <laughs> and uh, you know it's funny and short, and don't watch uh, reruns of Friends and watch these instead. That's true. Yeah. My big takeaway from Kimmy Schmidt season two was the the next great drama on television will be half an hour. And I really do believe that, that we, we are kind of experiencing a weird, like, over well, It could be uh, the girlfriend drama. experience. Oh, that's is it okay. half an hour? Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. I have not I have watched not it. I have not seen it, yeah. Have, David, did you see? I've seen half of it, and I'm I'm certainly not willing to call it the next great television drama but it's very good i'm excited to see the second half whenever 
if and when I survive Tribeca. Uh, and it, it does... I don't know. I'm on the fence as to whether or not it fills me with hope about the potential of a 30-minute drama. Um, but I don't I know. It's a conversation I'm willing to have. There's a lot of room there. I was reading recently about um, Mary Tyler Moore spinoffs, of course, as you do. You just sit around reading about the spinoffs. And do. of course there was Yes, as I do, specifically. And, of course, there was Rhoda, hilarious. Phyllis, not so great. And then there was actually... Uh, another one, I think it may have been a one-hour drama in the beginning and then been a half hour, but it was Lou Grant. And, you know, this is all James L. Brooks, so it was a half-hour drama eventually. And I think that's just so intriguing. Like, let's go there. Let's condense stories and throw you right into the action and be dramatic. And I think Kimmy Schmidt, for all the laughs, almost gets there. It's very poignant, especially in the back half. So... Check it out. Kimmy Schmidt, season two. Bingeable. Bonnie and Kitty being best friends. Together forever, the fun never ends. Solving mysteries one hug at a time. Bonnie and Kitty, two of a kind. Uh, For those paying attention, although I'm not sure why it would necessarily, uh, New York City is currently hosting the Tribeca Film Festival. I believe it's the 15th Tribeca Film Festival. It is indeed. Uh, it doesn't seem that big a deal, but it is for New York. Fifteenth uh, isn't a real anniversary. Wait till twenty. What I mean, every five years is it's the you know uh, one month anniversary of Vaxxed not being part of the Tribeca Film Festival, <laughs> uh, and we're we're trying to cover you know the plight of living in New York City while Tribeca is going on is you, you have a million other things to do. You're doing your job, and you can't actually get to this festival for some reason. But one person who has been forced to cover the Tribeca Film Festival very intense way is David Ehrlich. So, David, Our I don't know. Millennial what Peter I should be. Travers has been. Yeah, sent. Millennial Travers here. I regret reading that review already. Katie, <laughs> Katie has seen some of uh, I have seen so a handful of movies. Maybe, Katie, you start because David's seen a billion things and we're going to get the highlights for him in a very quick. This is the mini segment, of course. But, Katie, what have you seen? This uh, I saw two movies that I really liked. One of them is called All This Panic, which is a documentary about teenage girls living in Brooklyn, but not like, I don't know, not like the hit Brooklyn you're thinking of, or like a very normal seeming Brooklyn. And uh, it's shot in this really beautiful way by this uh, husband and wife documentary team who are photographers. Then um, it follows them over three years. It's kind of, kind of this boyhood vibe of watching them grow up. And uh, the cinematography is so beautiful that it uh, kind of evokes the emotions of these teenage girls in their lives and makes you very glad you're not a teenager anymore. And then uh, this other film called Always Shine that uh, I believe is by a friend of David's named Sophia who I have never met, so this is an unbiased review. Um, but <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, it's true, really true. I have, no, I have no stake in this movie at all. But uh, it stars Caitlin Fitzgerald and Mackenzie Davis, who uh, you would recognize from various things, um, as these two actresses who go to a house in Big Sur for the weekend and kind of work out their various jealousies of each other's careers and kind of the, the tension ratchets up. There's kind of a horror movie vibe to the whole thing because uh, one of them is auditioning for horror movies and it's kind of building up to something that you don't quite know what it is and I think it's a distinctly feminist movie kind of about how these women are operating in the world and how people see them and how they want male attention but also don't want it and especially as actresses are kind of discarded and treated by the men who control their lives um, that I thought was really interesting and it's a scary movie I mean it's like you know not like horror movie but like it has tension to it and I survived it so credit to me um, now for the bias review, David. Yeah, those, no. are the, those are the two that I would. Uh, those are the two that I would talk up, and I don't think either of them has a distributor right now. So you know, hopefully they'll come out at some point. 
Yeah, I mean, I think always. I mean, I am biased. Sophia is a is a good friend of mine, um, but I do think that uh, it is far and away the best film that I've seen at Tribeca, uh, and I'm not surprised to to hear that. Uh, but I, yeah, I mean, I think it, it reminded me a lot of Mulholland Drive is sort of an obvious touch point mm-hmm. um, in its, at least in its tone, um, but it sees that story or a story similar to that through a lens that isn't readily available to David Lynch. Even though this was written by a man, it was written by Sophia's husband, Larry, uh, it is very much a woman's story. And I think there's just, there's just so much sort of psychosexual subtext and uh, so much about the, the gaze of the film that is unique to her and womankind. Uh, and That was Larry the Cable Guy, right? Yeah, uh, Larry does a great job of writing the script. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of address of the camera, both like by the actors and like in the way the filmmaking oh. is done, in terms of like the, you know, your usually male gaze of the camera that it's, you it, even, it's, well, hmm? go on, sorry. Well, yeah, just like the you know, it almost kind of implies that the camera is a male gaze, even though it's directed by a woman, which is pretty interesting. You even see the slate. You do in the, in the screen on several occasions. What? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's very it's, meta. I, I am confident, and I, I really hope that I am proven right, that that movie will get out into the world. Um, I think it's – anyone who's seen her previous film, Green, which may or may not be – I mean, she's been in a million things and some that she's written. Green was lovely. I, well, Green was the last one she directed. Way, but. Yeah, I mean, I think this is uh, – Green, Green is a, a micro-budget film. This is a lot more muscular. Um, it's a lot larger, I think, that this was a huge coup for Tribeca. This film could have really easily played at Sundance or South by Southwest, uh, and I think it – was uh, you know, but whatever quirk it ended up here, looks good for Tribeca. Um, uh, some other films don't. Yeah, rattle rattle some <laughs> off that we need to check out. Uh, let's make see. It. I mean, there there are definitely some things that I have enjoyed. I, I really like Dimitri Martin's film Dean. Wow, not really liked, but I liked it fine. Um, I haven't you know, so I've been working at IndieWire, which is why I've been covering this festival so closely. And we give out letter grades at IndieWire. And just in the context of this conversation, just so people understand where I'm coming from, uh, I haven't even come close to giving any of these films an A-ish grade, an A-minus or anything like that. I would have uh, almost famous uh, – almost sorry, almost famous fuck. Uh, <laughs> A-plus. Always, always shine, although I accidentally referred to it as almost shine, which Sophia said she liked. But um, – uh, always shine. I would have definitely uh, put in that range, but I recused myself from it. Uh, I did really like King Cobra, which is a true crime gay porn story, obviously starring James Franco. <laughs> um, Who else would possibly star? Yeah, which uh, I think is is seedy and tender and kind of spectacular in its own way. Uh, and bruising esque or no? Uh, it's, it's sort of Boogie Nights esque, oh. um, but it's really sort of this. It's Christian Slater and James Franco and these two other guys, uh, and they play these sort of. It starts off. I mean, it's it's difficult to frame, but there's it's like it's a rising Dirk Diggler esque equivalent, but in the of the in the twink variety, uh, and he falls into a bit of a brouhaha between two rival porn studios, King Cobra and the Viper Boys, and it's funny and disturbing and sad and all these things. I, it's, I thought it was quite good. Um, Dean, which is another one of those directorial debuts about grieving a, a imminently or recently deceased parent. That's Dimitri Martin's film, I think, is, is well done in the vein of uh, the Sundance opener, Other People, which I guess most people still haven't seen, but uh, a much lighter version of James White. Although this movie starts with the parent already having passed and Kevin Klein plays his father. And he goes out to L.A. He's an illustrator. He meets Jillian Jacobs. Gillian Jacobs. 
Gillian, actually. Gillian, yeah, I should know. Uh, and uh, and yada yada yada. That was that was pleasant. Um, there are some few strong docs. Doc Tribeca is a strong documentary festival. It is wrapped mm-hmm. in a lot of bullshit. Uh, there's a film called. I really want to see the movie Katie reference that I haven't yet. But there's a film called Keep Quiet, which Zeitgeist, I believe, is putting out. And that is about a Hungarian anti-Semite who learns. He's like a very outspoken voice in Hungary's uh, nationalist party, ultra-nationalist party. He realizes that he is actually Jewish uh, and has a very swift about face and becomes an Orthodox Jew and uh, has a lot of difficulty. It's sort of about... I mean, he has a lot of difficulty being, finding acceptance in the Orthodox community, but I think underlying that is a study of the kinds of people that need an ideology in order to function, wh- uh, whether it is fundamentalism one way or the other. Obviously, he's fallen into something a little bit more benevolent, less violent, but it's a, it's a really interesting story. And then there are films like Custody, which stars Viola Davis. Uh, and was directed You're by the guy. You're recommending that? No, no. I mean, like, that no. was really the average Tribeca film that I saw, which is, like, open to the – it's about the uh, child services world in New York City and, and uh, uh, the girl from Maria Full of Grace, Catalina Sentina Moreno, I believe, Yep, uh, is plays a, an immigrant mother who accidentally – trips her kid and child services takes the kids away uh, and Viola Davis plays a judge. It's a movie called Custody that starts with an on-screen definition of the word custody and only goes <laughs> south there. I was in actual pain, even though it does have a number of salient points about this um, frustrating, but you know, I guess necessary. And yet system. someone will gain custody of this movie and put it out. Uh, who knows? Uh, yeah, I mean, I saw Katie Holmes' directorial debut today, All We Had, which is an adaptation of a novel about and she stars in it about a uh, mother and daughter who are sort of nomadic, uh, poor, trying to uh, routinely taken in by men who offer Katie Holmes the world or at least a small recently foreclosed house, uh, but really are only interested in her for a little bit of, of time and not interested in picking up the baggage that comes with that. And they learn to rely on one another. Uh, it's a bit milk toast, but was uh, competently done and – uh, produced by one of the heads of the Tribeca Film Festival. <laughs> um, Imagine that. Yeah, uh, it's it's really been a slide. Elvis and Nixon, which is the centerpiece of the festival and opens everywhere on Friday, or at least in New York and some other places, is just fucking wretched. Uh, even though Michael Shannon does a decent Nixon or a decent <laughs> a decent Elvis. No, uh, yeah. My question about that is: Is it worth seeing for the novelty of seeing Michael Shannon as Elvis and it's Kevin Spacey as Nixon? Well, definitely not Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey okay. is one of the most toxic actors alive, and his his uh, okay. Nixon is like Frank Underwood times twelve. No, it should. That's um, not what interests me. It's really Michael Shannon. Yeah, it's like it's Nixon. so fucking hammy. I was uh, painful. Uh, Michael Shannon is is a fascinating. Elvis, but only if you could watch this out of one eye on Netflix, which you will be able to do very soon. Amazon. Uh, Amazon. It's an Amazon movie, right? Um, uh, do not pay to see this movie. Do not go <laughs> to the theaters. You will regret all 90 minutes of this fucking vapor that is put before you. It is a nothing of a movie. Wow. Um, and yeah, this is... I mean, I, you can hear from the side of my voice, I'm really in the weeds with it right now. Uh, I'm, I will have a better perspective of the whole festival, uh, if I emerge from it with my life and can look back and see it in the rearview mirror, right now it's just sort of the strange swirl that you go down to this alien pocket of New York City, which is not in Tribeca, mind you, where the festival is centered. Well, uh, some of it is. Battery, Battery Park is Battery not Park Tribeca. Regal. Well, 
much. That is not Tribeca. It's Tribeca adjacent. It's Tribeca esque, but it is such a weird place. It's so dislocated from the rest of the world. Yeah, it's and a movie theater in a hotel where you would have no idea the movie theater was in it unless you like go up the right four escalators. To yeah, it's it. a massive multiplex that is invisible. It's really uh, strange. It's, it's so weird. This whole festival is so weird. Yeah, I feel like uh, we've talked about this every year this have, podcast has yeah. existed, where we're like, oh, Tribeca again. And- oh, and Alma Harrell's film Love True, which was executive produced by Shia LaBeouf, uh, she made Bombay Beach, which is a wonderful movie, which I believe is on Netflix. She spent years of her life making this documentary about love. It played to me like a Terrence Malick-directed episode of MTV's True Life. I wish that came across as more of a compliment than... Uh, than it should be. I was uh, been, I was debating seeing that. That's good to know. There, there is no. I mean, there's real artistry there. There's a real uh, examination as to love in all of its forms and the shape that it takes. It did not come together in anything meaningful for me. It thought at 80 minutes or whatever it is, it should have been much more fleshed out. Uh, anyway, um, there'll be stuff to see. But this is <laughs> this is not Sundance. It's not South by. These are not movies that are going to come out and that's why it's interesting. My theory is that Tribeca should really focus on the talks. Like, I went to the J. Sure. Jordan's Chris Rock talk, which I thought was interesting to listen to. And They shat on got, Batman versus Superman? Yeah, they've got Jodie Foster, they've got Tina Fey, they've got, like, the Cast of Broad City had thing. Like, there's the it really... It, the yeah. VR. I mean, they have so many things going on. And we actually did a, a, a conversation piece on IndieWire. I did this with Eric Cohn and Kate Irland um, about sort of what Tribeca is, looking at all how it is this many-tentacled beast Um it's, it's If you're at all interested in the festival, it's worth reading uh, as we try to figure out what the festival is. Eclectic Method. Okay, so last week we reviewed John Favreau's The Jungle Book. Um, and it seems like actually people were really angry at us. I don't know if everyone here knows this, but... A lot of people loved the Jungle Book, and, and we, I liked the Jungle Book. Apparently, did not become yeah. come across clearly enough. <laughs> we poisoned. I really need to. Uh, I really need to stand up for myself more. I like the Jungle Book. Come at me, bros. I more just like yeah. had to restrain myself from tweeting at all you guys, and they're like, "Are there bears in the jungle?" And I was like, "Oh." <laughs> I can't believe we talked about bears and didn't have you on as a special guest. Go to be fair. It's, it's okay. <laughs> By the end of the segment, we did know. Oh, yeah, no, I listened to all the way and through. If listened to the whole thing, they would know. Yeah, don't tweet in the middle of listening, David Sims. Exactly. <laughs> so you're calling specific people out <laughs> on the podcast? Anyway, I'm sorry there are not trigger warnings on our reviews when we hate movies that you love. We don't hate The Jungle Book. There's a lot to uh, appreciate about it, including the CGI animals. And that's really what I want to kind of go back to because I, I, you know, ruminating on Jungle Book, what worked, what didn't and seeing it as probably the kickstart of of a lot of positive thinking in Hollywood about CG effects. And clearly they already greenlit Jungle Book 2. So that's going to happen. Yeah, they greenlit that like early last week before the movie even opened. But, you know, people love this movie and I'm, I'm trying to wrap my brain about around um, what too much CG means to people. Because I think it's a complaint we hear every weekend at this point. Uh, We're going to hear it a lot more this summer. Too much CG, too much CG. Uh, I think David was complaining during our Jungle Book review about like Marvel movie CG not matching up to live action. David actors. is complaining mm. at a, a given moment of the day. You have David complaining about too much CG in Marvel movies. <laughs> Just at a bit like one thirty. Call the him on the middle of the night. Screaming about it. too much CG. Um, and yet, people love 
a lot of fully CG animated movies. Pixar, obviously, bread and butter. Uh, and yet we roll our eyes at, at Warcraft. And we're in current awe of uh, Jungle Book. And yet the news that there are going to be four more Avatar movies uh, makes people's <laughs> skin crawl. Well, okay. Um, well, well, I, now, I am the counterpoint of every point you are making. Just, well, just no, for letting now, you know. I think it's... I think it has a lot to do with the absurdity of Avatar, that for some reason these big blue creatures and the kind of CG landscapes, like what are we watching? What is possibly going to happen in these movies? I don't know why you'd underestimate it after the first Avatar. Or every movie James Cameron's ever made, but... There's something, yeah, cartoony about Avatar and the CG and the designs that seems to, I think, thread through that negative reaction to the franchise announcement. And so kind of... I, I want to figure out what is too much CG and why Jungle Book works. And really, you know, like we talked during Godzilla, which a bunch of us really loved. And David, you wrote something uh, on the Dissolve way back when about, and we talked about it in our review episode too, uh, about the kind of post-human blockbuster. And I think we're getting there, right? We're, I, I could picture, my big takeaway from the Jungle Book was, fuck the Jungle Book, give me The Lion King movie immediately that's what i want to see i want to see revamped um you know incorporate the broadway elements let's do the lion king with the jungle book technology no humans needed um but still kind of do it like dinosaur back in 2000 oh shit yeah that movie real locations uh and then kind of incorporated the cg characters into those real plates isn't that what the good dinosaur was basically trying to do no because that was fully cg yeah, but it was like hyper realistic in the way that the Jungle Book is, but just with uh, kind of cartoony characters. Yeah, well, because they had the human problem that the Jungle Book avoided by using a real kid. Right, and then so the Jungle Book was still that, shooting. That was the most cartoony element about it. <laughs> still, still not in the Uncanny Valley. Lighter eyes than any other. Um, Bambi eyes, uh, but at least the Jungle Book was shooting real. You know, it was interior sets built on a soundstage in L.A., but at least it was shooting real elements to kind of put these CG characters in. And I could imagine a movie that shoots empty space on real sets and incorporating like a Lion King remake with just all CG characters using this Jungle Book uh, CG. And I wonder if people would go for that. If well, we really in the post, we're not we have we've seen the post human blockbuster. Have we, can we enter a post human era or is that what Zemeckis already fucked up for us? Or is that what Alice in Wonderland was doing five years ago? How is that? No, that's. I mean, it's all humans, but it's all CG landscapes. It's basically about three hundred. Now I'm talking about reverse three okay. CG characters, and maybe you, you're. Yeah, I would. I mean, my nations. My first thought when you talk about something like this is to think about the star system and how, uh, you know, we're, we're we're talking as much about money as we are technology here, and as we see the concept of movie stars really begin to erode and branding take over everything, and this, is, I think, is actually at the heart of what's happening with Avatar and the levels of uh, befuddlement around that is because you know people have uh, all these boners for Marvel, these characters. These characters, are they mean something to them. They, they conjure, they know them, they have that familiarity. Avatar, even though it is the most successful movie of all time, still feels pun sort of intended, like an alien 
concept to them. And it, it doesn't have that same foothold. And so I think people are far into it. But I do think that as people, as movie stars become less important, mm. um, you will see this, you know, it will dovetail with technology replacing the need to have humans to begin with. Eventually you will see, um, and you see this in video games and all the time and probably in Japan, in other arenas, uh, and in the animated world, that characters, IP, the, the shape of characters becomes uh, – you know, the movie stars of the future. I mean, they'll, they'll create, like, Buzz Lightyear. Um, it's Simone. Simone will person. be the next uh, yeah. Marvel and, and character. Marvel right. will own Simone, or Disney will own Simone, and they'll be able to decide what she wants to be in, and then someone will hack that and uh, Photoshop her, or whatever the appropriate term is, into their own porn movies or whatever, and then it goes on and on and on. <laughs> That's not that different from Disney owning Spider-Man and like where it's not really doesn't really matter who is Spider-Man. You can just keep putting him in different. So Disney doesn't own Spider-Man. You know what I mean? It's not the same because there's still a human actor who's going to play Peter Parker. But if you could somehow have uh, a CG character play both Iron Man and Tony Stark. You don't have to ever worry about Robert Downey Jr. quitting on you or right. Don't worry about Dylan O'Brien breaking his leg. Right. Yeah. You just run over by a car during the Maze Runner movies. Uh, you, yeah, you just have an actor who could last 50 years. Imagine someone, a CG creation, playing Bond throughout in the entire span of that franchise. Uh, you can get. I mean, I kind of want Dave to weigh in on the uncanny valley nature of all of this because I feel like you've probably thought about this more than all of us. I, I I don't know if I don't know if we're as close to the non-human human element of a movie as you're saying we are. I mean, Dave, I mean what do you, you think? You have to have something that's always driving the performance. I don't think we've come up with ways of convincingly animating a photoreal human into it. We have figured out ways to make people look like other things but there's always some sort of like data that's representing all the like uh human facial twitches and whatnot that we like can. any circus's whole career exactly uh, and so he's basically been driving that uh, technology but i think we're basically past the uncanny valley in more ways than we think um a lot of people i feel like don't know how to talk about computer-generated imagery, and a lot of times they say, like, you know, that's bad CGI or that looks so fake when it's specifically about, um, like, not being used to seeing something that doesn't exist in real life suddenly rendered with algorithms that's supposed to uh, realistically capture, like, individual follicles of hair. Like, if you ever watched the making of The Desolation of Smaug, the, like, 40 minutes they dedicate to how they designed that dragon and, like, hand-painted all the scales and whatnot is basically, I think, evidence enough to see that the technology exists to completely bridge the gap. You're just looking at um, the people who are able to pull it off right now have to be at, like, the top of their field and really know what they're doing. Which is what's exciting for me about like James Cameron getting five more avatars because it's like they might or four more avatars. It's like they may all suck, but basically what we're doing is we're you know renewing a grant in James Cameron's you know cinematic <laughs> technology you know forum. Uh, and how much of, cheaper just to set him up down there and have him knock out four movies? Oh and, yeah, you know. Well, he's spending all of his own money anyway, so he can do whatever he wants with it. Yeah, but I think like we're really close to whatever a post-human uh, thing is. I mean. I don't want to. I know I already got yelled at for talking, bringing up Civil War, 
but uh, it's interesting. Ah. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> we'll do it one more time. Uh, it's interesting because not only is like you were bringing up Iron Man being played by CGI, they they do the same de aging thing to Robert Downey Jr. that they did to Michael Douglas and Ant Man for a significant you know chunk of like uh, three minutes of screen time, and he's in a close up with himself uh, aged. And you suddenly realize that, like, even if Robert Downey Jr., who already is, like, never on set in the Iron Man costume, the Iron Man costume is a completely CG creation. Um, could Wait, there's not even, like, a stunt guy in the Iron Man costume? There's a stunt guy in a motion capture suit with, from what I understand, just the shoulder pads. Wow. And then when Robert Downey Jr. comes in, he wears the same shoulder pads with the same stunt suit. But everything else is computer-generated. And then, wow. so seeing that in the same movie with this, like, de-aged young Robert Downey Jr., it occurs to me that, like, basically that character can be around until Robert Downey Jr. can't wheel himself into a room and get dots glued to his face. Yeah. So, like, I think we're going to see that come up as an issue first, but then, like, to be the futurist in this conversation, um, a whole bunch of people got their entire bodies scanned in to make digital doubles for a whole generation of action movies, and those rights are owned by the studio. So as soon as these people start dying off or they need another Legolas and uh, Orlando Bloom doesn't want to like jump on board, uh, the, from what I understand, the legal uh, ramifications of having those body scans still belong to the studio, which is like how they were able to cast Arnold Schwarzenegger's original Terminator bust for like Terminator Salvation or whatever the one he was in. Um, oh. So I think like that's going to be this like everything everybody was worried about when Fred Astaire danced with the Dirt Devil. Like that's mm-hmm. actually going to be where this becomes a business necessity is when somebody balks at like a contract or gets too old for like a reoccurring role. Uh, we have all this digital information about them. So why not just create a character out of Or like uh, when Paul Walker died in the middle of Fast and Furious that they recreated him and they used his brothers, but they also just made his face out of old footage for the movies. Yeah, and then like because you have these actors that have had like long careers, like Harrison Ford could be Indiana Jones forever. Like you have footage of Harrison Ford that age saying basically like every like phonetic syllable you would need to make him say anything so yeah they had, like uh, the, they had the alec guinness say uh ray yes exactly force awakens sorry yeah. i yeah. even the, and i talked over each other the the film the congress with robin wright penn mm-hmm. uh or robin wright sorry i that's just the name i learned it's and, been robin, like right ben foster since the uh, robin wright penn geez come on yeah uh no i mean this is uh, sort of what that film is about um but i mean these ideas and of course that that film is very loosely adapted from a stanislav lem book from late 60s early 70s and like these concepts have been played with for a while i think of ghost in the shell a lot uh in terms of this although that has a lot more to do with cybernetics than it does uh with digital imagery but we're mad at uh, that property right we are mad at that but if you know it's it's all sort of part and parcel of the same thing when that story broke about how they are uh, using CG to make Scarlett Johansson how they, how they consider it, they considered and then it, whatever the case it. was. Yeah, um, I mean it's very interesting. I mean, well, so was, do you, go. Go. Uh, there, we, we when I was visiting one of the sets of the Planet of the Apes movies, I was talking. Or Andy Serkis was talking about how like the technology of motion capture was like different, and he uh, at that time, which I think was during the second movie, was saying that. 
the barrier that he was most waiting to see when it was crossed was a, like what he called a digital resurrection, which is basically you have somebody come in and do an impression of somebody and then get reskinned with that actor's face. And so in terms of like, we're really close to that being the step um, in that sort of takes us across this weird threshold of uh, having perpetual IP characters. I think we're close Although, to that technology-wise, but not morally and, and comfort in terms of... Like, right, if exactly. they brought back Paul Walker for the next Fast and Furious movie, we'd be really uncomfortable with that. Also, nobody wants to see a movie starring Marlon Brando. No one under the age of... Uh, <laughs> is like, Marlon who? Well, I mean, but they more. brought him back to be in Superman Returns, so it's like, that's... In and the look direction. Well, they just at least used dialogue he already had. They didn't have somebody come in and do a Marlon Brando sure. impression. Yeah, I, I think it would have been. No one wants to repurpose these stars because they're actually not going to make movies better or more bankable. So you won't probably see that. I mean, what's the point? But if they could re- if they could remake, I mean, they did remake Marilyn Monroe for a Snickers commercial like this year. Okay, to sell to sell stuff to older people who eat Snickers bars. But I'm talking about like big properties. And that's what I really want to get at here. That are we what what are the movies that are changing our minds about CG, making CG more palatable at a time when everyone seems to be kind of rolling their eyes at CG effects, at least people who seem to really care about movies. I mean the general public will go see everything and maybe maybe the CG effects don't matter to most people that it's something they stomach but jungle book seems to have wowed people um and yet we're kind of like worried about warcraft a lot of people online are worried about warcraft because it just seems so removed from reality on some level i I wonder what makes cg palatable and if if the future isn't necessarily recreating humans with cg just discarding the human element and going with something entirely different that uses CG in a, in a photo real way, more like Jungle Book. Yeah, I mean, I think we're getting towards the point where people are starting to accept attempts at photo real CG a lot better than back when we first tried this with like uh, Final Fantasy and Jumanji, I think, were like the first two like big attempts of CG trying to bring real life things in. And we weren't, we weren't there yet. Like we're, the whole fact that we love computer-generated imagery as fast as we did was because we basically did it with dinosaurs first, and nobody knew what those things looked like. So as long as you make something that's biologically feasible, it's fine. But now we're in like the age of like Godzilla's got to fight a Muto. It could look like anything, and like uh, Guillermo del Toro's designing his like crazy Pacific Rim monsters, and uh, people, you know, you could make a real texture. And you could make a model that has like a cellular, you know, mitosis system that replicates and makes it swell, like that works with math. But people still aren't going to recognize something new as, you know, uh, real unless it's designed in a certain way. With the Jungle Book, it sounds like people are starting to at least be able to cross the Uncanny Valley and accept things that are like mildly anthropomorphized as nonetheless real than something that was like animated and anthropomorphized in the same way which is exciting in terms of how people view it that's what i'm obsessed about with jungle book is that the mouth motions feel real like having a jaguar talk to Mowgli looks totally natural yeah and Uh, that seems like a huge leap to me it did not for me i uh at no point in the movie that i feel comfortable with that um i I understand that I'm in the minority, but 
I, it was just You're a, finally oh, in the minority. No, yeah, I'm sorry. I know. Uh, thanks. Uh, <laughs> let our let our commenter know. Uh, the um, yeah, I, that that was an issue for me. But it's hard to get too hung up on beyond the actual experience because, well, I don't know. I mean, part of me thinks that the technology will continue to improve, even if it's in subtler ways. Um, and sort of that asymptote get as we get closer and closer, but never quite reach this ideal of uh, photo reality. But um, it's sort of the myth of total cinema all over again, this idea that uh, it, it, we can capture reality perfectly uh, and the attempts to do so continue to make it more difficult. But um, I also, yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of it has to do with with my brain just not believing. I'm looking at a tiger. I'm looking at a leopard. I know what a leopard is. I know that leopards can't talk, and I can't convince myself otherwise. However, when I'm looking at a hand-drawn animated leopard, it's not a leopard. It's, it's an anthropomorphized drawing. It's a completely different place in my but brain. But is it, is it the real element? Is the human element what confuses your brain, or it, you're making that comparison? I mean, you're the one who was advocating for this kind of like, or you're praising the post-human blockbuster in Godzilla. I guess Godzilla wasn't well, talking. My, as soon as Godzilla think, starts uh, song and dancing around... Uh, song and Godzilla dancing. Song and dancing. With, uh, <laughs> let's, I mean, post-human, it's a, it's a silly word that was slapped into the headline and maybe maybe I used it. I don't know. No, I think, I think you dropped it on this podcast I, first. I, wanna, I want oh, us yeah. to claim uh, that. I mean, whatever. I'm never going to go to bed for saying that, unlike Donald Trump, I have the best words. Uh, but I, that was a lot less about the technology involved than it was the role that the human characters played in that movie, which was very marginal um, and something I loved about it. I mean, that movie, to me, was about marginalizing those characters. It was about uh, orienting them in the center of the story and then snuffing them out of it uh, and sort of far, locating our place in the world. I mean, that's what I was interested in writing about. Um, and I think, you know, The Jungle Book is actually sort of explicitly about that, about man's place in the world. Uh, but... I yeah I, th- I think a lot about Fitzgerald though in terms of this about how mm. uh, you know, you know he didn't have Werner Herzog didn't have digital technology like this available to him uh, when he made that film but he in in order to depict uh, Fitzgerald though pulling a ship over a little mountain uh, actually made it harder for himself and his crew than it was for the real guy by by creating the ship that didn't come across in pieces that was pulled wholesale over the mountain and he did it because. A, he loves telling his own myth and inflating it, but also B, because your brain needs to understand what it's seeing. And you, you feel when you watch Burden of Dreams or even when you watch the real film, more importantly, when you watch the actual film, you feel that what you're seeing is real, that there's reality to it. And I think um, it, that is something that cannot be faked or cheated. And we continue looking for shortcuts. You can't tell the jungle book with real animals. So your two options are to. Uh, make it in a cartoon or to make it like this um, or I guess to make an all CG movie but nobody wants that I don't know I mean I think uh, it, this is this happy medium as people are likely to find I, I think that I don't know I, I'm, I, 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 it's hard I'm not much of a futurist uh, I'll have to defer to Dave because it always feels to me while I understand the impulse to move forward and great innovations to be had it's like really we've mastered what we have now, we all we have done the films, we have done the two D uh, analog film. Well, I don't think that's what futurism is about. It's about <laughs> no, it's assessing. Uh, uh, I look at the scene it now. Now I look at the top twenty films at the box office, um, and I just despair. At, <laughs> oh, come okay. on. Well, uh, like, 
I mean, if it if it makes you feel any better, the regardless of the technology, the things that are actually making a performance out of these CGI characters are the exact same things that have made a performance out of traditional animation since you know voice was paired with drawings. Is it's talented people who know how to manipulate their medium to convey emotion uh, of the voice performance. And sometimes that involves, you know, an actor's face, and sometimes it involves somebody at a computer. But at this point, like, we're going to develop the talents, but anybody can do it. And so it's going to be just an evolving field of learning how to manipulate these character tools, I think, in a different way. Well, I I will end this segment by pointing to to our, our listeners and telling them to speak up. And I want to I know what CG convinces you that there's a, a great future for CG, that it's not uh, hackneyed uh, uh, photoreal, unreal effects that are going to flood our theaters, something that's convincing you of the future. Where do you see it? You tell us. does it for today's fighting in the war room we'll be back on friday to talk about a movie with plenty of cg in it huntsman winter's war well yeah we'll have lots to say about that when time comes oh man uh in the meantime tell the people who you are i'm matt patches i'm the senior entertainment editor of thrillist.com and i'm on twitter at mr patches we have a website fighting in the warm.com where you can uh listen to the episodes you can share them you can comment you can talk about cg it will have a cg creature on the front homepage, probably <laughs> fighting in the worm.com i'm david ehrlich i'm the senior film critic for indywire patches wow, guys. so old yeah uh, <laughs> old timer critic this dick measuring about your titles is really getting old. No, no. wait was that a, that was not supposed to be dick that measuring the, uh, the tone it was i realized i was allowed to say that and, and it'd be true, so I did. <laughs> this is more A. What do these words even mean? <laughs> P, I, I work at a place and, and type a typey type. There's also no junior film critic in IndieWire. So <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, uh, you can find me on Twitter, David Ehrlich. You can find all of my Tribeca reviews, and there are many at IndieWire. And you can find all of us together on Facebook at Fighting in the War Room. You're talking about memories. Oh, okay. I just want to make sure you weren't doing a long pause like you did last week. I'm Dave Gonzalez. If I'm on Twitter. On Facebook. Oh, damn it. Damn it. <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter at DA7E. You can also find my writing at geek.com, latino-review.com. Guys, this Sunday, Game of Thrones is back. Storm of Spoilers posting schedule will be on Wednesdays after the episode airs this week. Um, and uh, we're, we're, we're ready. It's going to be a great season. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. I'm the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, which seems I so see. junior compared Loser. to all these senior positions. You are at the Tribeca Film Festival, I remembered. I, I stare up at the uh, colossal tower where you work. That's true. From my you know, environments in the gutters of Tribeca every day. <laughs> and yet you cannot be bothered to cross the street and be in the trenches with me, please. Did I not discuss movies I have seen? I just I, I avoid the trenches because you're there, David. Okay. Fair uh, yeah, I'm at VanityFair.com and on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R talking about this, you know, CGI and Huntsman and all kinds of stuff. And this week's lightning round question. And you can answer it. What was it? In honor of Elvis and Nixon, Dawn of Justice, what was the weirdest historical figure <laughs> casting choice? <laughs> How many other things are we going to subtitle Dawn of Justice before the year is over? Everything. Yeah. Oh, good. Everything. Everything two characters. Uh, uh, thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you on Friday.